Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone in the world that's uh, building a more humane world, a whole more humane society uh, from the inside out. And my guest this week is an old friend from Columbia, Missouri, Jeff Stack. Jeff is on the Zoom with me tonight. Hi, Jeff. Good evening, Dick. I, good, to, good to visit with you. Well, we've talked about this for, gosh, a year, a couple of years, whatever. But anyway, the invitation was out there. It was, you know, you, you made an offer and I had not, I have just not engaged in that. So, hey. It's always the right time when it happens. Yeah, there you go. Hey, one thing I want to toss out there, I, I appreciate that emphasis from the inside out. And I think for my own self, you know, I'm recognizing that a little too often I'm working on the outside. And so sometimes I'm a little bit roiled up inside and not really tuned in as much as I need to. So sometimes that's led me to be a little bit snippy with people. And if anyone out there is listening and has been the recipient of one of my, you know, <laughs> barbs, <laughs> my apologies. We're all works in progress, right? Hey. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, one thing, one thing I guess I'd challenge all of us to do, myself included, I think, I think it needs to be a balance though, you know, because quite frankly, I've done this myself too, but I've seen it in our society where we have folks who are so focused on serenity within that they're kind of like able to like tune out all the storm that's all around them, you know, the needs of people all around them. So I think there's the need for a balance, you know, so it's like a wave back and forth, you know, like to take care of ourselves and take care of all those around us, the planet, as, as noted in your flag behind you. <laughs> right. We, we need balance all around. You know, you learn from experiences outside, too. In the Columbia, Missourian editorial, the Dalai Lama. What drew me to him was, um, you know, what the, what the Dalai Lama had said about um, compassion is the radicalism of our time. And the reason I guess that came to mind, quite frankly, I have to, you know, I feel like pop culturalist instead of, you know, a, a literal a literalist, because you know, I was reminded of that because it's been on my bumper sticker, bumper of my car for all for years now. And so, you know, I looked at that again. I don't know why I looked at it particularly, but I thought, wait a minute. You know, it, it resonated. It always resonates with me. But um, but you're right. I mean, you know, his, it, it's important to, to consider where people come from, what their experiences are that brings brings them to these points of realizing this wisdom. I'm not a scholar of the Dalai Lama. You know, I, I've had, I had the pleasure of, you know, seeing different talks. I've never met him in person, but what an enlightening and beautiful being, you know, and it just, what encourages, excites me is that there are so many different pure spirits, pure-ish, maybe I should put it that way. None of us are quite perfect. You know, when I think in terms of Catholic workers, when I think in terms of, uh, you know, Muslims, I, I know in this community, quite frankly, as far as a group of religious people, I would challenge, you know, folks to find a more compassionate percentage of people as they, you know, who attend like for instance, the Islamic center. We got some great Christians in this community too. Wonderful folks of the Jewish faith. When people, when people adhere or try to live the, the concepts that are, that are spoken of and that guide these, 
these uh, holy beings or, you know, uh, I, I think that we do what we would do well. But anyway, so the Dalai Lama's uh, saying really resonated with me because I see that. And what got me thinking about that was, is that compassion is plentiful, but not the way it ought to be. It kind of feels like it's uh, there's a lot of flowers growing up out of the uh, sidewalk cracks, you know, and we really need fields of, of uh, compassion. Like for instance, you know, what really got me going on this, putting this editorial together was, is that, um, you know, I've been volunteering at the soup kitchen the last several months and thank goodness for the tens of thousands of people who have volunteered to help make this a reality. And that's thing, that's what is exciting me because there's, there's radical compassion shown every day. I mean, the fact that the soup kitchen in Columbia, Missouri has been in operation nightly since 1982. I mean, people have come together. Ruth O'Neill needs to be, be, uh, get a shout out publicly here. She's the one who's kind of coordinating the schedule, uh, you know, and, and people from so many different faiths come in, you know, people who are, are Hindis, uh, lots of Christians, uh, folks from the, um, Islamic Center, um, the, you know, from, from the synagogue, and many groups who have nothing to do with, you know, there's the John Brown Gun Club, which, which has a pretty regular stint there. There's a lot of different folks that help out and individuals, but, you know, what a miracle happening every single day. It doesn't make the front page of the newspapers, but I thought, well, gosh, I need to give a little shout out. Yeah, I encourage people to check out the, uh, the Columbia, uh, Columbia, Missouri, and, and it's great to have a forum where you can actually get your views out and not have to be uh, shut back because it's corporate run or something. So if someone wanted to volunteer for yeah. working at the soup kitchen, uh, you yes. say they would contact who? Ruth O'Neill. And um, what I was, a friend of mine, Joy, uh, Joy Cole, uh, mentioned to me, uh, she talked with Ruth, and Joy is a dear friend who's been working really, a lot too, but um, the email address to email Ruth is Ruth, R-U-T-H, 1327 at yahoo.com. So that's something that people can do. And, you know, the reality, Dick, I guess what really kind of got to me was is that we have a lot of great, amazing individuals. But as far as our governments go, we have a lot of evolution you know, I believe in democracy. I believe in, you know, in, in uh, democratic institutions. But we have, sadly, in this country, not so much in other countries, in European countries, many other Asian countries, many countries, African countries, are more keen to help the people. You know, in this country, we have this warped vision, capitalism, capitalism. I'm a, I'm a socialist. I, I'm offended by capitalism in general. Small business capitalism I can live with, but we have corporate capitalism. We have rugged individualism driving policies. Like, for instance, here's the reality. Tonight, as we're recording this on Sunday night, okay, we know that the temperature overnight is going to be 28 degrees. That's what they're, pro they're, they're predicting, 28 degrees. I got a note. Uh, I'll go ahead and share this. I was trying to find out from Ian Thomas. I know the city has had a practice in years past. He's, he, there are some people who do some wonderful service. Ian, we also have Mike Trapp, other folks. I mean, people don't get paid but much. You know, it's a really a pitiful situation we have for our representative government here. But we have this policy. I, I was trying to find out from Ian, you know, what is the, the, uh, the threshold? How cold is it when it's so cold that folks need to at least have access to like the bus station? They arranged that last winter. And 
I was thinking, oh, maybe 32 degrees, below 32 degrees. Yes, that should be opened up so we don't have our brothers and sisters maybe suffering from frostbite, you know. But what I found out sadly today, it has to be nine degrees. Below nine, nine degrees or less, and they'll open up the bus station for people to stay overnight. Not to sleep overnight there necessarily, but to be inside and prevent themselves from maybe having uh, hypothermia or something. Well, the other night, last week, last Monday when I was doing the soup kitchen, it was sickening. You know, when we closed up the soup kitchen and because of COVID, people, you know, and again, this is another, and I, in my editorial, I, I lauded this group, Wilkes Boulevard United Methodist Church. You know, if ever there's a center where Jesus hangs out, it would be there, <laughs> you know? It's like they've been doing the soup kitchen there for decades. They have a day center there. A lot of other churches are doing good things. I don't mean to just single them out alone, but this is an exceptional center of spirituality, you know? There, and, and I'll get to another one in a minute here, but, but yeah, they, they have the soup kitchen, but because of COVID, they're limiting the amount of time and a lot of people who can stay in yeah, when it's below 40 degrees. They've decided that up to 20 people can hang out in the dining area, separate it out, two on a table, and then we shift people in and out of there. So it's, it's, you know, it's still safe, but it's not ideal, but it's as, you know, it's best that can be done. And then the next people will come in. So to, peep, to peep, keep everyone safe, it's tough. So the other night, Monday night, I, I'm going to do it, next, this, do it tomorrow as well. But Monday night, boy, it was going to be in the 20s, you know, at, at night. Among the people who were leaving, you know, I felt so bad. We didn't have any place to go send because the shelters are generally full. Some of them, I'm not going to get into it. Are, I'm glad they do what they do. They aren't as generous with their space as I wish they were, but they're doing more than 98% of people in this community for dealing with our homeless brothers and sisters or unhoused brothers and sisters. Anyway, there were so many people who were le- who were, uh who are leaving, you know, going out into the cold, you know, a couple dozen at least who had no place to go leaving. And these are only people who came who showed up to the soup kitchen. Several people had no gloves. I didn't have extra gloves. I had one pair of gloves I could pass on. You actually came into my awareness uh, over the death penalty years ago and being part of the uh, Mid-Missouri uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation. How long yeah. have you been a part of that? Well, I've been the uh, coordinator of it since um, 1987. Actually, I was a co-coordinator for a few years. I've been the coordinator since then. Um, John Shooter, who some of the listeners might know, did you you knew John Shooter maybe, Dick, did you? Yes, I knew of John. We didn't really have a yeah. relationship, but I knew John through yeah. him and you. Uh-huh. Good. Well, I'm going to go ahead and explain him a little bit. In 1961, he came to town here to Columbia along with his wife, Retha. And so they met with a couple other folks in their living room, is my understanding, as I recall the story. And they wanted, uh, John It was, uh, was a Quaker, and he helped form also the, the uh, Columbia Friends meeting back in 1961 with his, his wife and others, a few others. But back then, he and others were concerned about the fact that the uh, Vietnam War began to seem to start to kind of come upon the scene. There was starting to be some U.S. involvement to follow up on the, on the French uh, effort to try to uh, maintain a, a, a colonial, uh, colonial footprint, control the resources there. Anyway, uh, John started tuning in to that, was concerned about that, concerned about uh, nuclear weapons, uh, following, you know, it hadn't been that long before, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the nuclear weapons tests, 
uh, all these different things. And also John uh, was, was aware and so was FOR uh, beginning to get a, a concerned about the um, wanting to support integration. Columbia at that time was uh, segregated and so FOR was uh, partnered with other groups in the uh, Columbia area uh, to support pickets. Like at, I believe it was at the uh, bowling alley, at the swimming pools, some of the other public spaces, FOR and John and others were very active also in supporting integration of neighborhoods. And so that was one of the early FOR things, but also you're quite right, the death penalty. In 1961, I believe, um, there was uh, an execution that took place at the uh, Missouri State Penitentiary in Jeff City. And I'm thinking that, I think that was the last one, but then there was a break, you know, when the uh, US Supreme Court ruled that uh, the death penalty was, um, was unconstitutional because it was uh, cruel and unusual. Uh -huh. And so there was about a three year period where death, the death penalty was completely ended anyway. And, and then after he came back though in, in another Supreme Court decision um, I think that was the Greg decision. They're both based out of a, a, a Georgia cases. Um, but, but then, um, and then when I joined, I, I came to Columbia. Um, it was really, I, you know, it was kind of a happenstance. I got, got to meet John and John, by the way, just to give you a sense of who he was, he's a guy who had a, he, they had a vigils. I didn't meet, I didn't know him then, but during the Vietnam war, uh, he had a vigil, he always wore a tie and the, shortcut hair and you know he was a he was a um, uh, one of the early pioneers of the defibrillator so uh, he was involved with that at the university he was an individual who uh, he was you know at the time in the early 50s the push was you know like it is still these days the warped perspectives of our government right that that he you know he has an engineer they wanted him to go into uh, military, you know, trying to learn. And that's where the bigger, bigger money was. Well, he declined. He refused to do that. So he, he was really picky where he went to. And so I encourage people who are listening, if, you know, students who are engineers, don't accept the, 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 the line that, you know, you, that you should use your, your energy to try to help build better weapons. You know, think about other ways you can use your know-how. This world needs brilliant people. And John, thank goodness, chose that path, you know, to do different, different things. When did you actually come to Columbia? Well, I was in high school up in Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I guess it was in like in 76, I decided I wanted to go into journalism. I was kind of wanting to follow my dad's footsteps in a way. He got a degree in journalism from Bradley University. And um, I, I fancied myself probably doing like jingles for for radio and TV and, you know, cause I like, I like playing with words a bit. And so I kind of fancied that's what I was going to do. My dad was uh, in charge of radio and TV sales for KCRG, but mm. KCRG stands for the K of course, cause it's West of the Mississippi river and CRG Cedar Rapids Gazette. And I decided, you know, first I thought about staying in Iowa, but I thought I want to get the heck away. I'm the old, I was the oldest of six. And I think I, I think I probably tired. I was a bit of a junior parent really too. And uh, I wanted to get away for a while. And I was starting to get a little too wild. That was a little bit of a, a reality. And my dad and mom and I were having a little bit of, well, I had gotten into some substance uh, exploration and, you know, anyway, 
but anyway, so I came down to Mizzou when I, when I looked around to see about other schools and Mizzou had a great journalism school. It was a good fit generally. And it felt good to get away from home. But I realized that I, was a, I moved to the South, really. It, Iowa was reactionary in some ways, but Missouri, I became, I became aware soon was the South. You all and all that stuff. I, I got joked that when I went back home and they talked about when I said you all to one person, that was a, that was a sign I was flipping anyway or whatever. So that far back, uh, you didn't come across John Shooter right away, did you? No, I didn't. So it was, a, it, it was I, an I interesting think... path that led me to John and, and all kinds of other folks. It was kind of a, some would say twist of fate, some would hey, say God's hands. I don't know, but it was an interesting path to get upon. And I kind of got, feel like I got, I got kind of tripped upon it or something anyway, you know, as things worked out. Um, well, you, you said that you had a more conservative uh, upbringing. Right. Very uh, and, much so. And I don't think yeah. uh, socialism was on your uh, horizon. No, no. <laughs> no, I wasn't a very conservative household. I mean, my parents were loving. They were really good to me. You know, I mean, my dad, uh, it was interesting, though, because as a kid, we grew up, we grew up, I, I was raised in the Chicago area as a kid to start with. I was born in Chicago. We moved out to the suburbs. In part, you know, it seemed, it seemed to me that part of the concern was is that they wanted to move to a more, a more white area, quite frankly. It was start, you know, the suburb, the suburbs seemed safer. I think that would really, I mean, they want to raise family. They want to be, you know, it's about, I think they were interested in what they thought was going to be best for our, for, you know, myself and my sibs. And so we moved out to the suburbs and then my dad got an offer for a job. I don't know how much of it was wanting to move to a wider place. I mean, that's just how it worked out, you know, but we moved to Iowa, you know, it was incredibly, right. you know, it was real white, very white. But the thing I guess that makes me think that there might've been something to all of that was that um, my dad, my dad used to tell, uh, jokes at the table, racist jokes all the time. It wasn't jokes about Irish people or German people like our heritage. It was always jokes about, you know, Jewish people or Spanish or, or Mexican people or African Americans. He didn't, he didn't use the N word that much. I don't remember. Well, he might've used it a time or two. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, it's really weird because we'd go to Catholic church on Sundays, you know, but it was like, you know, I mean, at that time, again, I'm the oldest of six kids, five boys, you know, and, and so, I mean, at the dinner table, I remember him telling these jokes and when he tell racist jokes, it was like, I must've been like 12, maybe 13, maybe tops. And, you know, I'd be saying, dad, you know, that's not funny, you know, or something to be like me flipping and being a parent of sorts. It was crazy. It felt like, but anyway, I mean, loving to me but that's the kind of the up i mean his grandmother his his mother rather and father were racist as heck i mean it's more so more so they were anyway they're dear people to me but i remember when we lived in chicago i remember um the democratic convention riot and all that happened and i remember hearing my dad you know speaking about about those you know trashy hippies or dirty hippies or whatever you know and and I kind of, I kind of swallowed that all too. I, I went along with all of that. So, so I was, I was pretty much, you know, I probably was a Republican. I mean, back then, then we moved to Iowa and, and I ended up, um, 
debating for the death penalty. You know, that's the side I took because I, my impression, I was very sheltered. I mean, I lived in a pretty upper class. It wasn't a one percenter, but it was definitely a five percenter, you know, household I lived in. I had, I never was wanting, never had to worry about, you know, having adequate clothes or anything like that. I mean, I worked a lot, so I was able to earn some money for, to help with college and all. And then later on, after my daddy passed when I was 20, uh, I was responsible for paying, paying for my own. But anyway, um, you know, I, I had it really good. I had a really privileged, you know, un, unfairly privileged and uh, comfortable living situation. So when we got up to Iowa, you know, I, I, can, I felt I, I kind of was, I was, I was a Republican, really. I didn't, you know, I didn't like see myself as a political party person. I was too busy partying and, and doing other things and hanging, having fun with my buds and all that. But I was kind of staying with friends of that strata, you know. And anyway, so I came down to Mizzou and um, I guess it was my, I was into my second year, I think it was. And uh, I did work at KCOU, uh, worked in doing, uh, you know, helping on doing the news broadcasts. And I got to, I got to do a broadcast of the um, overthrow. I, I, I came upon the story of the, uh, or the, the overthrow of the uh, Iranian government by the students and all. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story of the uh, students um, taking over the embassy you know, that was, that was a story I started to follow. And by that time, I was also writing for the Maneater. Yeah, I was covering, they had protests outside the library uh, on, um, at that time was Lowry Street. I think it was open to tra car traffic, I think, or people were gathering on sidewalks in front of the library. And I don't know, there might've been some kind of a permitted march or protest, but there were I was covering for the man here, look, visiting with, uh, uh, it was interesting as I was so sheltered. I didn't have a clue, anything about the Shah. I had no clue about what was going on. So I was beginning to learn from Iranian students. They were, there was an, there was a really interesting dynamic going on back then. You know, it's hard to imagine with our, with our intense uh, political, well, I, you know, there's not much civil debate, right? These days, back then, there was very heated discussion, but there were individuals who were pissed off or upset that the, um, the U.S. ally, the Shah, was, was, uh, you know, was deposed. You know, they were upset about that, and they were angry at the students, you know, ticked off at them. So there were people who were protesting about that. And then Iranian students, many Iranian students, hundreds of them were on campus. And so they were helping to explain to people about what the Shah had done. Why people were why people were so angry about the Shah's repressive uh, government, what U.S. supported, you know, and so I was learning just a whole lot from hearing these things. Anyway, the demonstration, the main demonstration, had ended, and there were still some people hanging around, especially the students. And I was kind of listening to them, taking notes, preparing for an article. I'd written for the Maneater for about maybe a full year by this time. All these other reporters had left. And there were just a few people hanging around still, you know, learning. I'm a student of life. I hope to be always that way. Suddenly there was this ruckus or, you know, movement. This, this woman moved to the front of the library and, um, you know, people started to kind of focus on her. And uh, she, you know, to the right, like as you look at the library from Lowry Mall, to the right side of the library, the front face, 
suddenly we realized this woman was there with a gun in her hand mm. and was so distressed she was about to try to kill herself. Mm. And so there was just all of a sudden a focus right to her, you know, and there were police who came nearby soon after. And then suddenly all the reporters returned as well. Mm. You know, all these reporters who were there earlier. And uh, I was just, you know, I was stupefied. I was horrified. You know, what is going to happen here? I thought about her as a human being right away. Well, what's going on here? You know, what, gosh, I hope she doesn't hurt herself. Doesn't, you know, what is, what's getting to her to this point? You know, in part, maybe it was because of my, you know, a nurturing environment. It's like, what a shock this was to see this kind of thing happening. Maybe as a big brother, you know, and, and being with my, my sibs and they've had problems or whatever, but you know, it's like, I was empathetic right away. Well, when the reporters came back, they, you know, they recognized me as a person taking notes and they kind of immediately kind of focused towards me. And I remember really clearly and a couple people, different reporters, like hearing them maybe in conversation with, with other peers say, saying a couple different things that really stuck out in my mind. Like one, gosh, I've got a deadline to make. I hope she gets done with this. You know, this has gone on this, this kind of situation was going on for probably about a half hour, 45 minutes, or felt like hours, really just a really stressful time, just not knowing what was going to happen to this woman. Anyway, she, um, you know, she stayed there and was just, you know, just, just, you know, having the gun to her towards her head. And um, one reporter, I remember a reporter saying something to the effect of, you know, if she kills herself, this will be a front page story or something like that. It's like, what, what, you know? And, and I, I just, you know, at the time it, it seemed incongruous with what I was feeling. I didn't, I don't remember exactly. I didn't like scream out to them. What the hell are you thinking? You fool. You know, you know, what is, what are you about? <laughs> you know, I really, you know, that's, it didn't seem right. I mean, I was a junior. I was a junior among these people who had much more experience in this field, right? And so anyway, I'm not sure how much time passed, but finally this woman came, you know, had, must have gotten contacted by the police. Someone who had a, I don't, I wasn't privy to the conversations the police had, but I suspect a, one of the officers had asked, you know, is there somebody we can reach out to talk to you who you've counseled with or whatever? I don't know about all that. But I do know the woman, there's a woman who came there and she ended up talking to the woman and talking her into taking the gun down. Mm -hmm. And so she would, you know, they walked away and that was, that was it, the end of that part. So I was so relieved. I was so relieved, but it made me think about who I was becoming, you know, is this the path I'm going upon? Right. You know, is this really where I want to go? Do I want to follow up in the, in, with my peers and have that kind of callousness about other, about others, because mm -hmm. I'm so interested in the bloody story. That's the most important thing I'm going to do now. Nah. <laughs> anyway, I took a break from the, from the man eater at that point. And, and then I also decided, okay, I need to take a break from college. This is crazy. This mm -hmm. insulation, you know, this little world we're in, this cocoon we're put into. And I'd realized at some level, I guess, I hadn't really processed it. Maybe really not until now. I mean, I don't know. I'm still learning, right? But like I was in a cocoon all this time in my, you know, in my upbringing, you know, I'm, you know, in the church, you know, school, you know, here we are doing these, all these things and not really getting out and about beyond. Well, anyway, so I 
decided I was going to take a break after the semester. I finished the classes okay. I can't remember how much, maybe I might have had a month and a half to go or something. My parents weren't really pleased with the decision, but it's like, hey, I got to do something else. This is not what I want to be doing, you know? And so I ended up uh, deciding, okay, I need to do some kind of service, service to humanity. Well, in my uh, narrow way of thinking from my privileged point of, you know, point of the ivory tower of sorts, I was at least climbing the inner stairway or whatever, hadn't got to the top yet, right? But in my, in my, my, my privileged spaces that I was, that I was walking in, I thought, I thought service, oh, the service. Oh, the military, of course, right? So I applied to go into the Navy, but by chance, and so, you know, I, I encourage folks to keep kiosks uh, up and put notice on there because I happened to notice uh, a flyer on one kiosk that said, Vista, volunteers in service to America. So I, huh, service, okay, service, I like that, okay, okay. And America, oh yeah, my patriotic duty, again, because, you know, my country had been good to me. My country's not wrong to anybody, right? Heck, <laughs> good for everybody around the planet. Anyway, my naivete getting the best of me, but I did, I went ahead and applied for Vista. I, 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 I like I said, I went, I applied in the Navy. I went back up to Iowa to live for a little while and I returned to work. Um, I ended up returning to work for a little while back in the meat packing plant. That's where I had earned money before. Cedar Rapids had a packing plant. Uh, eventually, when I woke up, I, I figured I really wanted to be a vegetarian too. And that's about, I guess it's been about 40 years ago now. <laughs> but, oh. but anyway, I was kind of numb to all the things around me so much. It felt like not thinking about where the food was coming from and all that. But, but anyway, I decided to, yeah, I'll go ahead and, and um, you know, I, I wanted to go ahead and be in service. So it was interesting. Again, you know, some might say God's hand or fate or whatever else. But, you know, I, I took the ASVAB test from the Navy when I was up there. And a recruiter gave me a call one day and said, Jeff, you know, I don't know what's going on here. But, yeah, I know you did really well in your test. But we can't find the results anywhere. We can't find the test. Oh. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know. You know, he, he said, would you be willing to take the test again? And it was like a four or five hour test. It's like, <laughs> I'm not very excited at age 19 to take that all over again, right? I, come on. Well, anyway, I got a call from Vista from a recruiter. And in my packet that I sent to them, I asked to be, um, I asked to be, uh, uh, to be considered for the Northwest part of the U.S. And so uh, this gentleman named Keith Mortensen, I think is his last name. Uh, he said, well, Jeff, I mean, what would you think about Alaska? I said, whoa, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sounds good. So I, I ended up going up to uh, Nome, Alaska and working with uh, Coeric. It's a nonprofit uh, native corporation in the Bering Straits region. So I, so, you know, the thing that's kind of neat, that's really neat about Vista is that you work with uh, people who are low income. And so you, you live at a low income rate too. So it was a different, it was a shock to me in a bit. It wasn't like I was hungry, but it was a much, it was a, you know, one bedroom house that I lived in, which was fine. It was plenty. I had a honey bucket, you know, we didn't have, you know, they didn't have running water there. So I set it outside to get picked up once a week by the poor people who had that job. But I got to, a chance to, to work with uh, Inuit people, with, uh, Yupiak, Siberian Yupiak people, uh, Athabascan people, Native American people. 
this particular region was the size of Ohio and uh, 6,000 people lived there across in these villages and all. Nome wow. was a big city at 3,000. Hmm. And so, but I got the chance to visit lots of villages and met a lot of people. With Coeric, one of the most satisfying things, I got to uh, work on a video of uh, an elders conference with uh, folks uh, doing dance and storytelling and, um, you know, just met some beautiful people. And uh, it, it was really, it really gave me a, a completely different eye open onto the world. I worked as a volunteer at a women's shelter, taking care of kids while the, while the mothers were hanging out, you know, so I got a chance to be acquainted with that reality, which was really something I didn't generally have, you know, so my dad was, was an alcoholic, but he wasn't abusive of my mama. So, but uh, verbally sometimes to us, but, but anyway, so it was a real eye opener for me. Yeah. So one of the things we did at Coeric, I helped with the, uh, you know, teaching people how to read and people coming out of the prison. There was a, a state prison in Nome. It was in the, it was in the basement. It was downstairs. You know, people never got outside. So I met this, I met some of the people who came over before they were getting ready to get out of prison this one guy, I got to meet him. His name was Joe Amaruk. He's a, um, an Inuit man, an amazing artisan. You know, like he carved, did scrimshaw, you know, in, uh, with uh, wal walrus tusks and, you know, doing these beautiful. I bought a, I bought a, um, uh, a rabbit skin drawing that he did. I don't mm. know if I have, I might have it somewhere buried. I haven't found it for a long time. But anyway, you know, I bought one from him. I it was helping teach him to read. And I didn't really bother. I mean, he was such a really gentle man, a nice guy. And I really appreciate who he was. And so anyway, one day, I don't know if I, I think I asked somebody else, one of my colleagues, you know, what, what did Joe do? Why was he in prison? And they said, well, he killed his wife, <laughs> you know? And so I had had this warped image, you know, in my privileged, you know, privileged little bubble that somehow I was going to be able to tell who was a murderer and who was not like they'd be frothing at the mouth, you know, like Charlie Manson, like bug eyed or whatever, I guess It'd be so obvious. Well, yeah. Joe Amaruk was a really gentle man. Well, I ended up, you know, he was getting out of, out of prison while I was, you know, in Alaska. So I, I ended up hanging out with him a little bit afterwards, you know, and I did see he had a drinking problem, not like, not unlike a lot of folk up there, but I still, he still was a gentle guy. So we were friends for a while. My best friend up there with this guy named Dean, Dean Carter, who helped, um, was the main uh, media person at Coeric. So he was the one who oversaw the whole uh, filming of the elders conference that I was referring to earlier. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so really a nice guy in a lot of ways, about six foot five or so tall guy. We played basketball together. We played, you know, midnight sun softball, you know, at two in the morning or whatever it was. And, you know, we were buddies. They hung around all the time. And I was friends with his family and his wife. Well, one day with Dean, I went to visit Kathy. You know, I knew I, I, he was working. I know. I don't know why I went over there, but I knocked on the door to chat with her. And, and I saw she had a black eye. And I said, Kathy, what happened? She said, I, oh, I fell. I fell. I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. No, 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 you didn't. What happened? And I finally got it out of that Dean had hit her, you know, and, and so I had known that Dean had come from, you know, really rough background. He had been, he, you know, we were, had a lot of good conversations and uh, well, drugs and alcohol are part of our time together, but, but um, he was, you know, we had good conversations and he shared with me though, that he had been 
uh, in foster homes and had been sexually abused, physically abused. And so I, you know, I was, I had empathy for him. Again, I hadn't gone, I hadn't experienced people like that before. I hadn't really known that kind of reality, but, but anyway, so, but I, I, I confronted Dean later on. I said, you hit your wife. That's not acceptable. You need to get help big time. You need to. So I'll be all right. I'll be right. He's been in the dude thing, not at, not recognizing his need for help. And I was at that time, I was 20. He was like maybe 27 or something like that, quite a bit older. But anyway, so he did not. I finished my time up in Alaska, came back down to Missouri or Iowa first, then Missouri. I guess I was in Iowa, though, getting ready for my next semester. And I got a, I got a call one day from Kathy um, and uh, we visited for a little while. And and I, you know, we chatted and, you know, she wanted to get a phone number of a friend of ours, mutual friend. And I, I just said casually, hey, how's Dean doing? You know, and, and she said, didn't you hear? And I said, no, what? Well, he, he's on death row in California. Oh, so wow. now they, they had actually moved. They had moved to Anchorage when I was in Nome. And Dean took a job at a TV station as a, as a cameraman. And uh, so he was getting into some little bit wilder stuff there. And then he moved down to California later on and, and was convicted of killing three or four people. Wow. Well, I got a call from Dean later on once Kathy wasn't, you know, found out, you know, she gave my number to him and he called me and he said, you know, would you, you know, Jeff, what do you think? You know, I couldn't have done this. I said, Dean, look, wait, you know, I know you could have done that. I mean, I know you beat your wife. I know you hit her that once. I can't say that you wouldn't have done it because you wanted me to come to him uh, to testify at a trial. You know, it'd been about a year, I guess, must have passed before I heard from Kathy, year and a half maybe. And so then, you know, but I did say to Dean, I said, Dean, if you want me to though, I would be willing to testify at your trial, you know, at a retrial to say that I know you are a worthwhile human being and I would be saddened if you were to be executed because I think you have a lot to give to this world. So my awareness of the death penalty became much different. Then when I came back to Mizzou and went and began attending FOR meetings, we found out the death penalty was becoming a reality later on in the 80s. And so 87, 88, right? Then I began to you know, figure, well, I know how people feel about the death penalty. And I know how I feel now, now that I've gotten acquainted with people who have committed murder. They're not monsters. They've done monstrous things. Yes. But they are human beings with the preciousness within them that is with all of us. Great. Yeah. That's a, a huge lesson. Wonderful experience. And that was a two-year commitment. Well, it was going to be a year commitment. Oh, well, my dad died while I was up there. Ah. So I ended up ended up taking a break. I didn't quite finish the whole year, but I worked up there, did construction and other things to earn some extra money to be able to finish up my college. I think I had a year and a half left by that point, maybe it was. Mm -hmm. And so I came back to finish up that. We had to show up at Hearns to sign up for classes. And um, among the classes, I saw that there was this... Uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I saw this on the, at this table, peace studies. Now, what? That's interesting. Huh. Okay, sure. I'll check it out. Well, it became the most uh, significant class I ever took as it worked out. Hmm. Joel Blyfus was the teacher of it. You might have known Joel. He was, his family's from Fulton. He's currently the editor and publisher of In These Times. He's oh. been doing that at socialist publication, but he's been doing it for years. But, but I don't think he was the peace studies director for very long, but 
but I had the class, I took the class with him through that class. I met John Shooter. He came in, was a guest, guest speaker about the FOR. I met Lana Jacobs, who talked about the Catholic workers. She came and spoke. So I learned about uh, uh, the Catholic, the uh, Catholic worker and the soup kitchen, which was, which was just starting up. And so I began volunteering for that, the soup kitchen back then in 1982. Wow. So I did the soup kitchen for two years weekly. So there was a, a couple decade break from me and volunteering there until just really recently. But, you know, I helped out at times with other things there. But then I also ended up meeting Buddhist monks. And so I, I hitchhiked out to catch up with the monks who are, who are involved in the special session on nuclear disarmament with the march to uh, New York City uh, in 1982. Mm -hmm. um, and so my first demonstration I ever went to, I got really spoiled, was in Central Park where a million people gathered, you know, for to urge an end to nuclear weapons and all yeah. that. So, yeah. and then my first time I got arrested was soon after that with uh, 1600 other folks in, in protesting nuclear weapons. And, but I had begun when I was taking peace studies, I learned about the nuclear weapons freeze campaign as well. That was another yeah. thing that was starting up. And, and so- Part of that at the peace studies was Bill Wickersham, uh, I guess, yes. a friend of yours. Well, right. And I don't know if I met him then, but Bill also was a friend of John. And so they they were early on involved. Right. And so so I met John and started to attend the weekly meetings. I don't remember Bill attending meetings back then, but Bill's been a longtime friend of John's and mm -hmm. Bill's on our board or FOR board. He's such a dear soul. And, and if he's listening, he's having some real difficult health challenges. So Please keep him in heart and mind. You know, he's having a tough time. So. Okay. Will do. He was on this show a couple of years ago himself. So good. Good. One good. of my Not first guests. <laughs> Got a lot to share, a lot of wisdom. And, and so you were led oh, to right. write an article. I'm sorry, I mm -hmm. Right. I'm so sorry about that. It's so okay. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy. I'm a little fuzzy on when it started. It came to my awareness and I'm thinking, I'm thinking through the soup kitchen. I met this guy named Patrick French, I think is his name. And if he's listening, I hope he's got a place to stay now. I haven't talked to him for what, 20, 30 years or whatever anyway. But, but I asked him, I think I met him through the soup kitchen. And so it might've been for the Missourian. That makes more sense when I was writing for the Missourian. I don't remember who I wrote for at that time. I've got the article somewhere. I don't need to dig it out right now though. But, but um, I decided that I really, that, homelessness was a real abstraction for me, you know, that I realized that, you know, the people were homeless and like, it's, it's kind of bougie for me to write about it or think about it, just to interview people about it. It's like, okay, I need to increase my awareness, my understanding. So I talked Patrick into letting me kind of tag along with him for three night, three days. Wow. It was in the winter, you know? And so uh, back then, uh, I ended up, um, yeah, we had, a, uh, yeah, he knew, he knew what to do. I mean, we went and stayed at, you know, stayed like at uh, Broadway diner. They were open, you know, and, you know, you put a buck together and have coffee for two, three hours. Mm -hmm. And there was a church in town. I'll go ahead and shout, give a shout out. Jim's long dead. Unfortunately, Jim Fallis, who was the priest, the minister at, um, at Calvary Episcopal. If there's any kind of heaven around, he's probably chuckling. Maybe he gets to listen to this broadcast. I don't know how that all works out. But anyway, Jim was a dear soul. Anyway, uh, he knew he was way ahead of his time or was, you know, 
he was back in his time. You know, he knew what Jesus would have done. So of course he left the back door open in the church. So, so Pat and I ended up sleeping on there, you know, sleeping inside on a, you know, back on a stage or something, you know? So that was, that was a trick that Jim let people do, you uh-huh. know? So, you know, it, I'm just saying that maybe the, if, you know, if the minister's doing that at Calvary Episcopal, I say bully for you. Good, good for you guys. But anyway, that's the thing that, it doesn't make the headlines, but people quietly do all kinds of good things. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. For instance, there's a young, there's a woman here who in town, who routinely lets two or three people sleep at her house. My landlord, before he called me on it, I used to have people sleep in my house, in my apartment up here too, until my landlord. Find, I always talked about my friends. My friends from out of town. He said, "Jeff, is this person, is this person homeless?" And I didn't want to lie to him. I was like, "Yeah, he is." Uh, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> so it's like, ah, what the hell? I got an extra bedroom and why the hell shouldn't someone sleep in it? You know, it's time for some gosh darn radical ca- uh, compassion. So, you know, pretty soon if, if we don't get, you know, we're going to be having room at the end soon. So that's a good thing. But if we don't get, you know, I think it's high time we start to have a, a tent city in, in Mayor Teresa's yard, you know, or we go ahead and say, you know, we're going to liberate this public space, maybe the armory. Maybe the city council building, maybe the maybe the counts the county commission chambers or the building. Yes, this is going to be a shelter for homeless people until you get your act together and get another one set up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I encourage people to be radically compassionate. Will that uh, require um, what, what kind of process makes that happen? I mean, even if you're protesting, what what kind of process makes the agreement happen? Well, I guess, you know, it's an agreement with ourselves, for me anyway. I guess I can only speak to myself. It's like, um, you know, I, my conscience tells me, I, I mean, it's not, it's not a dictator, but it's a, it's a voice, for me anyway, that gives me a chance to be at ease in this world. Because this world is perplexing and frustrating, it's beautiful, but it's so short of its potential in what humankind can do, especially in this country. I mean, we have enough money, you know, you know, we have what I heard report recently, the three wealthiest people, I don't want to name them, but you know, Google, whatever else, you know, I mean, Amazon and, you know, <laughs> the, if these three billionaires, you know, in our country, the wealthiest on the planet, actually, you know, just in the last, you know, during the pandemic, I believe the figure is something like in excess, they've made like $75 billion, you know? I mean, that money right there could take care of homelessness across this country without, without any trouble, you know? you know? But instead we have this rugged, individualistic, self-serving, uh, uh, it's fascist, it really is. It's, it's anti-democratic. Democracy and capitalism cannot coexist as is practiced today. Small business, you know, if we had small business capitalism, yeah, that could work out. Free market, true free market, but corporate capitalism, the fascist capitalist structure we have these days cannot coexist with democracy. It doesn't, it doesn't. Instead, we have, we have a few million people homeless tonight in our streets in, across the US while we have, you know, maybe, maybe the Bezos, maybe he has 20 homes, I don't know you know, a couple castles, how many yachts, I don't really know, you know, but, but we have this warped reality. And so I guess for me, 
I, I'm just one human being, but I am a human being. And so I feel I have an obligation to be true to myself and to go ahead and do what I can uh, to make the comfortable uncomfortable, I guess, as some people have said in years past. So for me, what that sometimes means is that over the years, I mean, you know, decades from now, decades from now, you know, maybe somebody might ask me, well, what did you do to try to stop the 90 executions in Missouri? 90 executions now. We've killed 90 people, human beings, you know, because we could, <laughs> you know, not because they're the worst of the worst. They just had the worst luck. Well, and some of them were innocent. Most all of them were guilty. But okay, so if I get talked to by one of my future, the future, you know, future folk of this planet and, you know, going, what did you do to stop 90 executions? Well, I can say, and I've got to be kind of humble because I didn't do enough. I've been, I've, I've, I've arrest, I've, I've, I've tried to use nonviolent civil disobedience to try to stop two executions. That's not much, <laughs> you know, Father Carl Cabot, was arrested on the Bonterre prison at least six or seven times. He's, he's got the lead on moral authority as far as I'm concerned on this issue. Instead, in, this, in our country, we know the date these people are going to be executed. You know, we know, we know that, uh, you know, come, come Thursday, come Thursday at Terre Haute, workers are, are preparing. They've already practiced. They've got, they don't even need much practice because they're scheduled on the 10th, which is, by the way, International Human Rights Day. Brandon Bernard is scheduled to be killed probably about six o'clock. So not only is it known, it's planned. It's a murder. It's a murder. And in fact, on the, on the um, death certificates in Missouri, anyway, I suspect it's that way there. Under cause of death in Missouri, they write, they type in legal homicide. Legal, oh. legal homicide. Interesting, oh. you know, it's, it's immoral. It's, it's murder, period. The, guy, the people are all... Say, uh, securely detained. In fact, in Missouri, we don't even have a death row anymore. The Missouri officials years ago in the early 1990s recognized, you know, when it was at uh, JCCC, they changed it from calling it MSP. They switched, they, they, when they moved down to, bon, to Potosi, they decided they didn't, well, they weren't going to have a death panel, a death row, in part because it was too expensive to keep and they were getting sued for not being able, and they were, they were in a dungeon down there uh, MS, at MSP, but they moved, when they moved them down there, they recognized George Lombardi is, a, is an interesting fellow. I'm, we're, you know, hopefully we'll hear more about this down the road, but they decided, wait a minute, as far as peniological sensibility, you know, if individuals are dangerous, if they harm somebody else, and yes, we can isolate them, but they found that people who were living under death sentence were no more dangerous. And in fact, oftentimes are less dangerous because they, they were having to come to grips with what their life was gonna be like. They had a very finite period of time to get their act together. You know, that may be part of it, but you know, you take any people commit murder. I mean, there's people who are, they've done awful things, but we have this sad way in our society of defining a human being. So I've been arrested twice. After the first execution in 1989, January, we had a vigil outside the Potosi prison when uh, George Mercer, Tiny Mercer, was executed. And then we held our signs. It felt way too polite to me, you know, mm -hmm. to have known that somebody was scheduled to be killed, not just dying. We're going to kill them. It's like, what is wrong with me? I felt like, you know, it's like, 
I can't speak for other people. I want other, I want to have, I'd love to have a thousand people, quite frankly, show up at the prison the next time they want to kill somebody in Missouri. That'd be ideal to me. That would be a dream kind of situation. Say, no, hey, we're here. There's not going to be an execution today. We're going to be climbing the fence or we're going to be pushing open these gates, knocking down the gate to go, to go stop the execution because you're not going to kill in our name because all of us pay for that. And it's really an interesting situation. Years ago, our society was more honest. We had, you know, it was offensive and horrible. You'd hang somebody in the court square, but at least they were not ashamed. But in our current situation, it seems to me, you know, there's, I don't want to call it schizophrenia. That's not fair to people who had that situation, but there's a real, there's a real imbalance, right? Theoretically, we're proud of it. I mean, we, I've been arrested in Boone County Courthouse uh, courts a few different times too, when the judges said, confirmed that somebody who uh, a, ju a jury decided deserved a death sentence that confirming that death sentence. And it was so offensive to me, at least, I guess it's been three times I've been arrested in the courtroom for that with other people as well. But that's incredibly offensive to suggest that we have the right to kill a human being. That's where everything starts in the counties all around our country. And so the county courthouses. Wow. So anyway, so I've been, I've been uh, arrested then. And also at the, um, uh, I was arrested for the pro for protesting Earl Forrest's execution as well in the governor's office. And then both the times actually in 1991, and then I guess it was maybe, I guess three, four years ago, I got arrested uh, first in, go you know, trying to go and talk to Governor Nixon. And of course he wouldn't see me, <laughs> but, but, you know, because I wanted, I wanted to do what I could to urge him to stop the execution, to stop a murder. He had the only power legally, but the people power, we have a greater power. And so if we would waken, waken collectively and say, show up a thousand people and say, sorry, no murder today in our name. You know, we're not, we're not to that point. We're not radically compassionate enough. Instead, we're kind of comfortably numb you know, as long as we get our chance to have our, you know, and it's, it's daunting. People have a really tough, especially with COVID, you know, these are crazy times. So anyway, I also got arrested joining Sutu Forte in uh, being offended by the uh, cutting down of, of these mature trees. Too mm -hmm. often times I've been quiet. And anyway, I just, I've got to go to court for that in February as well. But uh, we're going to try to put on, on trial, the uh, practice in our society that, you know, suggesting that, you know, we have, I don't particularly believe in land ownership. I don't believe that human beings own the land. I like the notion in Native American spirituality that, uh, you know, that we belong to the land, you know, rather than the land belonging to us. So we only have uh, a minute or so to Whoops. wrap up, Jeff. Can you, can you remind folks about what's happening at uh, Unitarian Church? Oh, yeah, yeah. There'll be several things I'll, I'll remind people, if you don't mind. Great. So the Unitarian Universalist Church and also the, um, the uh, uh, Eastwood Motel, they'll both be available for room at the inn, I believe, starting about nine, the 9th or 10th of December. Following up on the death penalty, I invite people to attend a vigil. They'll be happening on December 10th. We'll be honoring International Human Rights Day by saying, please do not kill uh, Brandon Bernard in our name. So we'll be gathering from noon to one at the, uh, the courthouse uh, in Jefferson City, the federal courthouse, which is, um, that is uh, at, um, 
let's see, that is an 80 Lafayette Street in Jeff City. People can carpool from Columbia on that Thursday at 11.15, meeting in the Clovers parking lot near the intersection of Broadway and Old 63. Folks can call me at 573-449-4585. And again, there'll be an execution the following day. These are both scheduled in Terre Haute, Indiana. We're just gonna have the vigil the one day. But I would encourage folks to, to try to contact the White House to shame, shame Trump into doing the right thing. I don't know if it'll work, but also we need to pressure, pressure uh, President-elect Biden. He has said he is now an opponent of the death penalty. He was a supporter of it before and helped to push forward the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act when he was a senator. So he brought about the death penalty as it happened with Lisa Montgomery for one, who's scheduled to be killed next month. I encourage folks to listen to Democracy Now! Check out the uh, amazing interview that uh, Amy Goodman did with uh, Sister Helen Prejean. Check online for that at democracy, uh, democracynow.org. I'd also mention that if people want to plug in, yes, uh, Room at the End will be starting up later in December, probably about the 9th or the 10th. Uh, they can call me again, 573-449-4585. Hopefully there'll be a sign-up genius for Room at the End Columbia. But check that out too. And do please sign up. We need to have a lot of volunteers to help make this happen. It doesn't happen by accident. It takes people to be radically compassionate. It's not really that radical. It's just how we should be to one another. It's a little facetious, but that's what the Dalai Lama is encouraging us. Basically, he was right though, that, you know, that compassion is the radicalism of, of our day. And it shouldn't be, it should be the routine of our day. But I will also mention the soup kitchen people are needed for volunteering for that too. And if you want to get on the email list for FOR, I encourage you to check. You can check out our Facebook page, Mid-Missouri Fellowship of Reconciliation, or again, you can call 449-4585. All right. Thank you, Jeff Stack. Thank you, Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks we'll for doing you the show, soon, and, Appreciate and remember, friends, you. wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.